Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment, let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community. Today, Clyde Glass is teaching and, again, continuing our series, Finding Complete Joy. And an update for the weekly viewpoint that I talk about each week in our podcast intro, there are two ways you can get it. And currently, on Fridays, that viewpoint goes out via Realm. That's one of the ways. And so starting in a few weeks, you're going to need to join a group in Realm to get that viewpoint. We're not just going to send it to everyone. So if you have a Realm account, you can add yourself to that group today. And we'll make that switch over in the coming weeks. We'll let you know when. And then the other way you can get that viewpoint is simply through our website or, like I say each week, at the link at the bottom of this podcast episode. And really, the best way to know about what's going on at Southview is by checking out that weekly viewpoint. And so you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. Or again, you can go to Realm and join the new group I mentioned earlier. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here. And Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, friends. So good to be joined together here. And for those gathering online, glad we can be joined together and come to this word God has given us and let it prompt us, lead us to this meal of communion together. Uh, But just before we turn to God's word together, I want to give an encouragement regarding our Alpha ministry, which we've been speaking of lately, that starts this Thursday. And Alpha is a great time to be asking questions and discussing questions that we wonder about in this faith, about who God is, what scripture is about, who Jesus is, and what this life of faith is to look like. I would so encourage you to consider this, whether you are just considering Christ or maybe been journeying with him a long time, it is such a good time to kind of grapple together with these great questions of faith. So if you're interested in that, you can register on our website or just go to the Newcomers Center or Information Center and let them know. I hope many of you would consider that for this week as we begin it. But we are continuing today in our teaching series called Finding Complete Joy. And in the series, again, we've been being guided by the book of 1 John, which John says he wrote so that our joy may be complete. Now, in recent weeks, we've been reading and receiving John's encouragements around the reality that our God is light and the corresponding invitation to us to then come out of hiding, to stop covering up and concealing and step into and walk in the light of Christ. And in that, we've been invited, called to be a confessing people. And last weekend, if you were with us, we expressed that together by bringing each of us our words of confession to Jesus, who is the water of life, really laying our mess and stuff before him 
and asking him for his forgiveness, his healing, his empowering and grace, which I pray will not just be a one-time experience for us all, but it'll be a pattern that we walk in daily as we follow Christ personally and as a community, as we find cleansing and freedom in him. Now, in our passage today, John takes the next step in his encouragements to his original readers and to us. And he here addresses the question, how can we know that we are children of God? That we belong to or have come to know God? Because we need to remember, John is writing this letter to those who are ready turned in faith to Christ. He's not writing to those who don't yet know Christ. And the question these Christ followers were asking was that question of religious or spiritual assurance. Okay, I put my faith in Jesus, yes. So in addition to the promise that if I believe in Christ, I'll be saved, how do I know I have truly come to know God? How can I know I'm a Christian? Because... I may not feel any different. I haven't had any dramatic religious or mystical experiences. How do I know? These are great questions. So let's turn to John's epistle and let's listen to his words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And please turn with me then in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. And as we come to this, remember, this is a word of God. And let's pick up John's writing in verse 1 of chapter 2, and he writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Just pause there. So another purpose John had in writing this letter was really to keep Christ followers from sinning. That was another purpose. Back to verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, meaning that on the cross, Jesus provided the full payment for our sins in the means for us to have full reconciliation with God. So Jesus is a propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know we have come to know him. If we keep... His commandments. Okay, so verse 3 here provides an answer to our question. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments, meaning if we keep Christ's commandments. So these commandments John is referring to then are the precepts, or really the teachings, the guidance of Jesus. So in one sense, This is a description of obedience to Christ. But it means more here than just kind of a mechanical obedience to just a set of religious rules. Because in John's original Greek writing, that word keep there in verse 3, it is a Greek word, tereo. Tereo. Want to say it with me? Tereo. And it had the meaning of watchful, careful observance. In other words, what John has in mind when he writes of keeping Christ's commandments, it's not just the act of obedience. 
although that's certainly included, but he even more so is speaking of the spirit of obedience, the heart of obedience. So he's not just talking about compliance to the letter of the law, but an engagement really with the spirit of the law. And what he's saying here is that to keep Christ's commandments, which he writes about here, is a heart thing. It's a heart thing. And what he means is that to keep the commandments of Christ is to guard, to watch, and to hold as a precious thing these guidances and precepts of Jesus. Okay, so that helps us in our understanding of verse 3. But then in verse 4, John, it seems, gets kind of testy. Listen to verse 4. Whoever says, I know whom, whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Sounds a little testy, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is a word that you have heard. All right, so so what's John talking about? Here's what he's talking about. And they really aren't easy words to hear. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay. Now, while I believe this passage can be a source of really a great encouragement and guidance and clarifying assurance for us, I also believe that at first reading, this can be quite intimidating, perhaps even confusing. Because John says what on first reading can be heard as almost frightening things, really. I mean, how many of you felt a bit of a shiver or maybe gave a bit of a gulp when we read verse 4? Whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Sounds fairly strong, doesn't it? doesn't seem to leave a lot of room for the possibility of some other explanation, like you are then a stumbler or you're confused. No, it's simply you are a liar. And John doesn't seem to qualify what he means by keeping Jesus' commandments. So we're kind of left to ask, does he mean all of the commandments, all of the time? Because who can say they keep all of the commandments all the time. I can't say that. Neither can you. In fact, just think of last weekend. Last weekend, we collectively declared before God that we all have failed to keep all the commandments. We rightly confessed. We acknowledge that together. So a first reading this could lead us all to think, we are in deep weeds. 
And again, he's writing to believers here. I mean, it's almost as if John is eliminating the possibility that anyone could confidently say, I have come to know Jesus. Because who could possibly say that according to these points? I keep all the commandments all the time. And then what adds to the confusion about this is that as we studied back in chapter 1, John seemed to be saying kind of the exact opposite of what he seems to be saying here in verse 4. Because John said there to these believers, to followers of Jesus in chapter 1, chapter 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. To put that another way, if someone says, I keep all the commandments all the time, they are deceiving themselves, and they are a liar. And and now in chapter 2, verse 4, he seems to say, but if you don't keep all the commandments all the time, you are a liar. Everybody's a liar. So I'm kind of confused, maybe a bit stuck as I read through this, right? And it doesn't end there. Okay, now as an aside, have you noticed already, as we've gone through the epistle to this point, do you notice how John at times speaks with just incredible warmth and caring to his readers? It's almost as if he's writing to members of his own family, even to his own children. In fact, he uses that very terminology, chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. Then look at verse 18, children, it is the last hour. Then look at verse 28, and now little children abide in him. There's just this gentleness and patience and care in that terminology, isn't there? And he also calls them beloved and brethren. But the problem is that sometimes in the very next verse, or just a few verses later, this same warm, caring parent uses language that is almost hostile, or at least quite cold. And he also speaks at times with a very either-or rigidity. He uses language at times of kind of extreme polar opposites with not a lot of middle ground. It's either love or hate. It is either light or dark. It's truth or lies. Which kind of makes you think like you are either in or you are out. I mean, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're not just struggling with sin. You are a liar. Really? So I think this raises questions for us. How do we reconcile all this? How do we make sense of all this? How does this fit with the grace and mercy of Christ? Here's the deal. To reconcile these tensions and really to answer these questions, again, we need to consider and be aware of the context within which John wrote these words. To put that another way, we can read what John says, but we also need to understand why John is saying it. So we rightly ask, as we do of all scripture, why was this written? And who were the original readers? And and what was going on at the time that would cause the author to write what he writes here? 
Because answering those questions, which are vital for understanding any portion of Scripture, are critical for us to rightly divide, to rightly understand this word of truth, and to resolve these apparent tensions. Okay, so let's begin with this. One thing we need to understand about 1 John, if we hope to make sense of it, even with the rest of the study in our, this book, is that 1 John is what is called a polemic epistle. A polemic epistle. And polemic simply means, as you likely know, to be against. So as we read this, understand this is an argumentative. This is a disputative letter. Because bottom line, John is fighting against something here. He's fighting against something that was posing a threat to the life and light of the gospel. Something that if allowed to take root and grow could do great damage. Not only to the cause of Christ and his kingdom purposes in the world, but also to John's dearly beloved little children who were deeply desiring to live in the reality of the kingdom of Christ. So understand, in a word, John is fighting here heresy. In fact, in chapter 2, John reveals quite plainly one of the driving motivations for his writing this epistle. Look at chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And then in chapter 4, John calls those deceivers false prophets. Earlier in chapter 2, he calls them antichrists. So understand this. Every time John calls someone a liar, we need to understand that he's not speaking there to my little children. No. He is speaking, he is confronting these false teachers, these false prophets, these deceivers, these antichrists. And he adds in chapter 2 that by the time this epistle was written, look at verse 18, even now many antichrists have come. You don't need to wait for some eschatological future for antichrist to show up. John says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they are already here. You know, there are kinds of popular teachings that seem to blow through the church from time to time, and, and, and some might be kind of off-center a bit in some teaching, but there can be kind of a, a self-corrective along the way. When, when the people speaking these things want to do what God tells them to do. So there's times where you really don't have to make a big thing of it because people's hearts are soft to God. They're ready to be corrected. But every once in a while, for whatever reason, a significant errant teaching begins to take root in the church. And then it gets momentum. And it begins moving through the body of Christ, really damaging and misguiding people in their faith. So let's understand, that was a case here. That's what's going on here. John says, there are many of these false teachers and prophets. And it was a tremendous problem in this growing church. Now, we just referred to this briefly a few weeks ago, but 
Let me tell you the larger story of what was taking place. So really we have a, a better picture of what was happening that I think will help us understand this whole letter. Here's what was going on. In, in the latter part of the first century, there were these groups of Christ followers scattered throughout Asia Minor. And again, they were meeting in house churches in these various cities. And they met in homes because there were no dedicated church buildings. There were none of those really until the fourth century. So most of these Christ followers began their journey of faith in the kingdom of God under the ministry and leadership of this same apostle, under the apostle John. And understand, they were, they were by and large a simple people with a simple, authentic faith. Not many of them were wise, not many mighty, not many noble. I mean, there were some wise, mighty, and noble, but not many. And as is the case with all truly redeemed people, this faith thing was for them a love affair with Jesus. You know, obedience to his precepts, uh, abiding in his truth and presence, really seeking to walk in the manner that he walked. These were all things that they quite naturally and eagerly lived and aspired to. So, for example, when John says in 1 John 2, 5, that whoever keeps Jesus' word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. They would have understood that. They were living that. And basically what that means is that our obedience to Christ it, it's not being done because we're afraid he's going to hit us with a stick if we don't obey. But our obedience is born, first of all, out of this love for Jesus. This whole thing is really a love affair. And, and love, John says, is perfected in obedience. Our love comes to full form, full expression in our obedience to the one we love, worship, and seek to serve. And the people in these house churches, they would have understood that. They would have gotten that. That's how they were living. John doesn't have to drill that into them because they love Jesus. And, and out of their love for God, they lived a lifestyle of obeying and abiding, uh, believing and loving and confessing when they blew it. And they did those very things. All of that was normative for them. You could say it was a simple faith. And added to that, the kind of longer, expansive, nuanced creeds that we now declare in our day, like the Apostles' Creed or Nicene or Athanasian creeds, those creeds hadn't yet been developed. You know, the creed of the church at this point was simply this. Jesus is Lord. That's what they knew. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, we don't know a lot, but he's our king, he's our hope, he's our savior, he is our Lord. But then, at the time of this writing, all of that simple, wonderful, love-born faith started to be up for grabs. Because these scattered groups of simple believers in Asia Minor, they were facing a crisis. And it was a crisis precipitated by a group of false teachers from within the church 
who were calling themselves Christians. And they had begun to despise this group, what we could call just the simplicity, the purity of love and devotion to Christ. And one of the reasons they despised it was simply this. It was too simple. So they had begun to kind of look down their spiritually superior noses at people of simple faith. These people who could just kind of love Jesus, people who, who held precious his teachings, who just confessed their sins and loved their brothers and sisters in the church from the heart. How meager is that? How tired, how sappy is that? Said this group of spiritually superior people. Because you see, this spiritually superior group that was really gaining momentum by the time this epistle was written, they had ascended, they thought, to a higher level of spiritual knowledge and insight. And over time, they had developed very subtly at first. And by the way, false teachings typically begin in subtle, slight ways. They seldom at their onset look like full-blown heresy. But they, over time, developed an entirely new version of the Christian faith. And in their minds, it was a better, superior version of the Christian faith. I mean, we understand some things that the simple people just haven't yet grasped because we have enlightenment. So this teaching, they believed, was only grasped by a select few. It was only grasped by the elite, the enlightened, the intelligentsia, because they were the knowers. In fact, some of them came to be called as a group the Gnostics, and their teaching was called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism, it really, it came from the ancient Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Okay, so that now, in these churches, instead of simple obedience, holding precious the teaching of Jesus, loving one another from the heart, now what was being revered and treasured among believers and the believing community was what you knew and how well you could say it. So what did these Gnostics and kind of proto-Gnostics teach that so undermined Christian faith? Well, their teaching really undercut especially three foundational, we could now say creedal, teachings or realities of the Christian faith. I just want you to be aware of these. Three of the things they pushed. First was this. They denied the deity of Christ. And this is going to be a major theme we read about later on in 1 John. And partly they denied it because they, like the philosopher Plato, were dualists. Meaning, in contrast to Jesus' teaching, they taught that anything physical, anything you kind of, kind of see or hear or touch, was bad. Only the spiritual things were good. Now, we're going to look at that more later on in 1 John. That was one of their false teachings. The second was this. They undermined, then, the need to follow and obey Jesus' teaching. Because if Jesus wasn't really God, why should we care what he thought? Or what he says about the way to live. Why obey him? Which again is a reminder to us, friends, that a faulty Christology, a faulty understanding of who Jesus truly is, that dramatically deforms our obedience to him. 
But, but there was a third false teaching that they had and pushed hard. And, and that was that. Their teaching undermined love. Now we see John address this in verses 8 to 11. Because in their perception of themselves as elite, they eliminated love. They, so they separated themselves from believers, from their brothers and sisters, who they thought were beneath them. Who really didn't measure up to their special standards. For example, these simple believers, these sappy people who just love Jesus. What losers. I mean, these elite ones thought. I mean, those losers out there, these simple ones, they have no clue what the soteriological ramifications of their ontological view has to do with the juxtaposition of redactionist theory. Neither do I, by the way. So enlightened knowledge was what was now revered. And it effectively created, you can imagine, two classes of Christians in the church. You can picture it. For one, one class was the simple ones, you could say. Those believers in Christ who really hadn't advanced to these higher esoteric knowledge, levels of knowledge. And then the second group, they were called the pneumatoi. Now, pneuma is an ancient Greek word and current Greek word that means wind or spirit which referred to them, the pneumatoi, living on a higher spiritual plane because they were the spiritual ones. And their spiritual ascendance was not born out of spiritual simplicity of love, faith, and devotion to Christ, but their spiritual ascendance was born out of how much they knew. They were enlightened. They were advanced. Now, the practical effect of this on kind of everyday simple believers had begun to go deeper than just them feeling like second-class citizens. I mean, just stop and think about being a spiritual second-class citizen. I think we could understand how that might feel. I mean, if you were, say, let's say, a simple believer, and the bottom line for you because you didn't know a lot about this or that, and you got a bit nervous around people discussing some of the deep things of theology. Not that there's anything wrong about talking theologically. That's a good thing, but you just loved and followed Jesus. And, and then all these philosophical debates began bouncing back and forth in a church, and it begins to feel like someone, someone's ability to play theological volleyball is a main deal. And, and then they ask you a question, and you say, I don't know, I I just love Jesus. I, I just want to follow Jesus. Which, which doesn't feel nearly astute enough, does it? <laughs> so the problem these churches that John is writing to were experiencing is that it had gone beyond that problem of feeling like second-class citizens because these simple believers John was writing to started to begin to wonder are we even the real deal? Did they even truly know God? I mean, their, their faith in life just seemed so shallow compared to these Gnostics. So they begin to ask, how can we know that we truly know Jesus? And the operative word there being what? No. How do we get that knowledge? 
I mean, because these knowers, these Gnostics over there, these knowers sure seem to know. And, and these knowers, these esoteric types, they're telling us we don't truly know Jesus. In fact, we know that these enlightened ones, they were leaving the simple fellowship. And as they left, the simple believers were left feeling, okay, they're leaving, and it sure seems like they have it and we don't. Even to the point of wondering, are we even in the faith at all? Here's the deal. For the first time in their life of following Jesus, these dearly beloved little children who John loved had begun to struggle with an issue that they'd never faced before. Assurance. Again, how, how can I know I know Jesus? How do I know I belong to God? I mean, these knowers out there, they say I don't. And, and you know what one of the primary casualties of their uncertainty was? Joy. They had lost the simple and deep joy that flowed out of knowing and walking with Jesus. So all through this epistle, and this is what this epistle is about, John is saying, in effect, my friends, my beloved ones, my little children, it's just not that complicated. So I want to remind you of some things. Let me just ask you some questions. Do you love Jesus? Do you, do you treasure his guidance and teaching? I'm not asking if you follow it perfectly, but do you, do you seek to keep them and listen to them? I mean, do you love your fellow believers from the heart? I mean, do you confess to one another honestly when you blow it? And, and do you seek to bring into his light what you're pulled to just kind of hide in your dark? Because, beloved, that's how you know. That's how you know. So don't you dare let these supposedly spiritually superior knowers who think they're in because of the hidden stuff they know or because of the mystical experiences they claim they have felt, don't you dare let them intimidate you or sap your joy in Christ. I have written all of this to you, John says, so that your joy may be complete and you only find it in him. It's all in him. So John rebukes here are, are not for these followers of Jesus who are totally confused. John's rebukes are intended for these Gnostic false teachers who did not love Jesus, who did not treasure his teaching or love one another or walk openly in the light of Christ. Understand, John's desire in this letter was to encourage these followers of Jesus who were starting to wonder and were confused and uncertain if faith in Jesus and simply following Jesus obediently was enough. So, beloved, hear the word of the Lord. By this, we know we have come to know Jesus. We treasure his teaching. We love and abide in his life. We, we confess our sin and we love one another from the heart. That's how we know. And all God's people say, 
Amen. So in that assurance then, as an expression to receive from Christ because we love him, I invite you, beloved, to come to the table. I invite us together to come because we need him desperately to join with the men and women of faith across the centuries and across the nations and break this bread and, and together lift this cup together here or at home, wherever you are. And Father, we would ask of you as we come, we want Jesus. So by his spirit in this bread and cup, would you feed us, nourish us, draw us to him, we pray. And again, all God's people say, amen. So would you take the cup out that you received and you, you came in and take out that very top layer to get at the bread. And together we come because we want him, don't we? We want Jesus. And the good news is that his body was broken for you. So receive from him in this bread. And likely, likewise with a cup, just pull that back. And this faith we walk in is not just a spiritual thing, it is a physical, tangible thing. And this is one expression of it. God gives us something physical to drink and to be reminded of the incredible reality that the blood of Christ was poured out for you. So drink and receive from him. Praise God. Let's pray to him. And Father, we know there are likely Gnostics around us. There certainly are. They aren't labeled that. But we know as well there can be times when we wonder, are we in your will? Are we walking in life with you? And I pray, Father, that by your grace, you would lead us to yourself. You would lead us to Jesus, Father. And even this week, in addition to leading us to him, would you use us to express his grace and love to others, that they might know you. They might know your son as well. This we pray in the hope you've given us in Jesus. And it's in his name we call out to you. And all God's people again say, Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me, friends? And if I can give you a reminder as well of a couple things coming up. Tomorrow after our 11 o'clock service, we have a newcomer's lunch again after the 11 o'clock service. If you haven't been to one of these, I encourage you to come. Just go to the newcomer center. Let them know that you'd like to come. We'd love to have you join with us. We're just talking a bit about what we're about as a church family, can meet some of the staff together. We'd love to have you be part of that. And then also be aware of our online baptism class that, that comes on February 2nd, that's Thursday. You can join online. You can register for that as well online or at one of the centers out here in the Cardo. But so hope you can join into one of these ways as we move into this week. And now as you do, move into whatever this week is gonna hold for you. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's walk in that hope. Amen.